Welcome to Defender. I'm your host, David Marsh, and today we have an excellent show lined up for you with special guest, Doug Dreher. I'd like to welcome Doug Dreher to the show. Uh, he has an incredible bio. He's currently applying his expertise as a senior physical security engineer for a Fortune 50 company. Uh, highlights of his background include COO of Asset Defense Consulting, founder and managing director of Shield Security Group, principal at Intersect Group, and served in the U.S. Army, the Army National Guard, and over a decade with the U.S. Navy. Uh, as director of uh, security and physical security program manager, and a lot more. So, Doug, thanks for jumping on Defender. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, more than happy to join you uh, in this effort. And what a great day to just sit down and talk. Absolutely. Well, there's a there's a lot to unpack. Uh, a lot happening in, in the security world for sure. Um, as Technology keeps getting more and more advanced, uh, a lot of things happening there. And then, of course, there's always some kind of threat that we have to uh, detour. So as security professionals, uh, we have our our work uh, cut out for us for sure. Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of go through your background. I was just fascinated by it. And uh, I thought it'd be great to, to just kind of see your journey from uh, your background into the security industry, what, what got you, uh, into the security industry. And, uh, if you wanted to, to kind of cover that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, made my first visit to an army national guard armory in Hartford, Connecticut in December of 1981, uh, raised my right hand in January of 1982. Um, was with the Army National Guard Military Police. So first introduction to security um, until November of 85 when I transitioned to the active Army. Um, was assigned to a physical security military police company uh, in South Korea. Uh, loved it over there. Extended, loved what we were doing. Uh, both whether it was in garrison or in the field. Uh, providing physical security, and then learning from my leaders. Uh, what does physical security actually mean? What does it entail? Hmm. Um, cool part, while I was in the National Guard, I actually got certified as an electronics technician and a microprocessor technician back in the day. Wow. Um, that was in 1983. Uh, being National Guard, still had time to go to school and everything like that. Um just wow fascinating and we'll talk more about where we've come from but i remember going into radio shack and building breadboards with components and doing component level troubleshooting and one of my first true physical security introductions to a device was the old joint service intrusion detection system called jsids hmm. um that was the alarms those were all the, the separate boxes that were tied in with phone cables. Uh, and those were the alarms at the military police station and being trained how to repair those, mm -hmm. how to fix them, how to install those. Uh, so that was really my first deep dive into device, the device side of physical security. Sure. As far as what I term the hardcore parts of physical security, gates, fences, uh, barriers, stuff like that. Um, Stayed until 1996, variety of jobs, 
throughout the army at various locations around the world. Uh, one of the last physical security NCOs at the Berlin Brigade. Uh, in fact, the last one assigned to the brigade proper, not the garrison, but to the brigade proper, uh, and transitioned down to Grafenwehr, Germany after and did some work with Army CID. Got a chance uh, to flex some anti-terrorism and force protection before ATFP was actually uh, a term uh, mm-hmm. with that team. That goes back to November of 91. Uh, I was honored uh, that I was accepted into an anti-terrorism instructor qualification course. The only one at the time was at Fort Bragg uh, at Smoke Bomb Hill with the Green Beret School with JFK Special Warfare Center. It was really strict criteria to get in. very small class, 20 really? people. Oh, wow. Broken into small groups from, and this was the only one at the time for Department of Defense. This course was the only way you could get certified. So, I mean, in my small group, we had Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force. Uh, and it was probably one of the most mentally challenging courses I've been through. Wow. Uh, but, kind of set me on the path, uh, continue with anti-terrorism, work with the counterterrorism teams, work with physical security hardcore, uh, transitioned out of the army in May of 96, was ready reserve, um, was working, uh, actually various jobs, uh, we'll talk about military transition, I think in a little while, yeah. uh, and said, you know what? Not for me. Um, talked to the Navy Reserve, and they were willing to take me back in. Went down to the MEP station because it had been a while. It had been a while. Had to retake all the tests and oh, get man. the physicals. And they offered me an active duty position right then and there. Wow. I called my wife, and she was like, go for it. And two weeks later, I was at Great Lakes. That's and insane was there uh we were at great lakes and i uh was assigned to bahrain to uh the naval station in bahrain uh i believe it's a naval support unit or naval support activity is the new term for it uh i was there when 9-11 happened i was in the middle east um and was pulled into a physical security position with Naval Central Forces Command, uh, along with a retired Master Chief, who was a civil servant at the time. And we were the only two physical security uh, people for all of NAPSEN, with all of the countries we had to cover. Wow. So we stayed super busy doing lots of really cool stuff. Uh, Both combat zone type stuff, minor deployments into there, um, more though focused on the support element. Uh, how do we make sure that, uh, we were doing supply chain security <laughs> to make sure that we could get what we needed into country, uh, through various different country stops. So that, that was really, um, 
a driving force again that just solidified. I love this. I have a passion for this. And it just kind of locks it down into your heart and into your soul. Uh, after that, uh, my wife is actually from South Korea. I met her when I was there in the army. Oh, neat. Uh, and then uh, we went to the U.S. Naval uh, Commander Fleet Activities Chinhae in southern part of Korea. So we stayed there for a couple of years and then transited to the United States and then uh, back to Japan and all over typical military transitions. And I retired out of Japan in 2011. Wow. Uh, it, what a ride. Yeah, I was going to say, can you, you know, with anything after 9-11 just had to be uh, kind of next level in terms of all of the changes that you had to have experienced at that point? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, most definitely. Um, and and I, I was actually at the point of transitioning my family to Bahrain with me because at the time, pre-9-11, you could bring your family over if you extended your, your tour over there. That kind of got shut down <laughs> really yeah. quick. Uh, but having them tell me and friends back at great lakes, tell me what was occurring there kind of made me feel good because they had the right people in place to do what they needed to do to protect the families, sure. protect the base. So that freed me up mind wise to go forward and do missions in all these other countries using Bahrain as, as the base for it. Uh, and then being in South Korea, uh, was at that time, uh, it, it was a lot different than when I was there the first time, uh, especially with the Navy. Uh, we were pulling ships into different ports where we might not have a U.S. military presence. So we would go in advance of those ships and set up all the anti-terrorism, all the force protection things, work with husbanding agents. Uh, with our NCIS counterparts, with the Korean National Police counterparts to make sure that we could keep these people safe, that we could keep yeah. our stuff secure. Uh, it was, and it's a totally different mindset. You hit that nail dead on the head, David. It was a totally different mindset after 9-11. Yeah, I mean, just everything had to be elevated and and just the uh, the anti-terrorism aspect of of everything had to be just elevated uh, at that point because you know we're in, you're in a, a war footing um yeah and then of course south korea seems to be in the news quite often um just because of what their neighbor uh in fact i think was it just yesterday um they had another incident so yeah. you know firing something off of course so yeah I'm, I, that that has to be a uh quite an interesting area to be in. That'd be kind of like being, um, you know, in, uh, West Germany during the, the wall being put up. Um, yeah. You know, because I, I can agree with that. <laughs> yeah. You just don't know what's going to happen next. Right. Uh, you're just, you're in the epicenter. So whatever does happen, it happens very quickly, I suppose, but, um, still not a, not a it great would thing. Be even, even Chinhae is far. So Chinhae is just West of Kusan. So it sits on the Southern coast. Um, the commander fleet activities, Chinhae is conjoined with, uh, probably one of the largest South Korean naval bases. Uh, when you realize you're in missile range, 
Yeah. And it's minutes. And the person up north has one of the largest stockpiles of chemical weapons. Oh, man. Um, the planning aspect from an anti-terrorism standpoint uh, was actually one of the better exercises that I've gone through. Um, making sure we had the coordination. Were we doing the appropriate things? Uh, were we supporting our chain of command? Uh, and the greater naval forces Korea at the time. Sure. Uh, it, you walk around with your head on a swivel, even in a relatively safe country. When you realize that you're that close in the anti-terrorism world, our job and physical security is the same way. Your job is to keep people safe, keep items secure, assets secure. And you realize just how vulnerable you are and that you can't mitigate that particular vulnerability. You can only do what you can do. Right. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's definitely a next level. I, I, I think I was thinking about this, just going from military life into civilian has to be um, has to be very interesting. It'd be you go from this high octane, almost like a, a race car driver, you know. And then he comes in and is driving his Prius when, when he comes home. So you're going from one extreme, you know, to another, obviously a lot of things that you carry with you though, from, from that world and that background has to, to be a big help. But what was that transition like going from, from military life and then adjusting to, into civilian? Yeah, it's, it, it's a large adjustment. It's a very large adjustment. Uh, you, you can't understate it enough. Um, Let's talk about the first transition when I exited the army. Hmm. Um, the programs, policies that were in place when I retired in 2011 were not in place in 1996. That was an extremely difficult time. Um, I would say a significant emotional event. Uh, thinking one thing, this is how it's going to occur. Um, I had applied in advance, done everything I could. Remember, this is 1996. Right. Totally this different. is like pre-internet. Uh, so I'm applying where I can apply. Um, luckily, had a landing pad uh, in the western side of Virginia. My parents lived down there. My brother and his wife lived down there. Um, so we had kind of a, a parachute. Yeah. Uh, to say that it was a culture shock um, doesn't do it justice. Uh, physically going out once I was there and doing the resume walk. Right? Let me go in and apply for anything I can because... I need to support my family, right? Right. I've got a wife and two young kids, you know. Um, how are we going to do this? Zoom forward to 2011, where we have, coming out of the military, you have transition assistance programs. Um, there are job fairs that are held now, uh, where we didn't have any of that in 1996. Wow. And... Post 9-11, President Bush had signed as part of the Patriot Act, 
you could transition and accept a position as a civil servant six months prior to your retirement date or your end of service date if you weren't retiring, right? Your contractual obligation. That's a huge date. help. That was a huge help because in 1996, you had to wait 180 days after to even apply. Wow. Um, that was a huge assistance. Uh, retired because I was in Sasebo, Japan when I retired. Uh, I had already secured my position as a security director at, uh, with the Navy as a civil servant. Uh, so when I retired, I walked into 76 days of drawing double pay because I was on terminal leave and they allow you to do that under federal law. Uh, and again, taking that security director role, a lot more responsibility, of course, because you're responsible and accountable for everything that occurs. Yeah. But kind of a warm, fuzzy, safe place because it's, uh, to your previous comment, it, it's the same. Yeah. It's, it's where it territory. came from. Yeah. It's very familiar territory. Shifting into a into the commercial side, into the civilian sector, um, and hopefully that phrase doesn't offend anybody, but shifting into the civilian sector, uh, have a large number of former military retirees that I work with now who have been through similar. Uh, the corporations now actively especially fortune 50 actively recruit former military that's smart uh it's very smart um they're getting a mindset um they're getting a work ethic um but more important they have internal transition programs to help you make that leap nice there are some that have internships there is some uh that that hire veterans and as a, a corporate entity with with a budget there's no cost to you the corporate corporation absorbs that so your team doesn't pay the salary for the first six months kind of a probationary period kind of thing uh, there's training that that they give out a large number of the Fortune 50, I would even go to Fortune 100, provide training. Uh, a lot of the trades that I deal with, um, construction-type trades, uh, security device installers, security integrators, um, they provide training for veterans and that. Uh, apprenticeship programs, um, and I can tell you this, I know that the Navy uh, can't speak for the Army or the Air Force or, or the Marine Corps, but I'm sure the Marine Corps probably has the same thing. They're tied into the Department of Labor now, where you can get your apprenticeship finished while you're still in active duty. So oh, wow. while the transition now is easier, it's still not easy. Uh I've seen quite a few memes out there make me laugh. Uh, one of them is, you know, I'm trying to stay in my swim lane, but y'all keep jumping in. Uh, 
because in the military, you're taught to just kind of stay in your swim lane, right? right? Do your job, do it the best you possibly can. Um, sure, there are little side things that we do collaterally, uh, but pretty much this is where I go. Um, in some of the corporate sector, it's, yeah, you're hopping all over the pool. There's no such thing as lane markers. Uh, and that's that's a different kind of stress than you have in the military. And I would tell you, if you channel it correctly, it's a positive stress. Sure. It's just not predictable. Right. And it's something new every day, which I find very refreshing. It's something new every day. Can it be frustrating? Yes. Uh, but if you take it appropriately and channel it, like I said, in the correct manner, uh, I use it as a driver. Well, it's smart. I mean, that, that helps us to uh, adapt you know, as things continue to change and, uh, it's really hard, it's easy to get kind of just stuck in, in sort of that cement, uh, for anybody really, but you know, you just, you just get used to a a way of, you know, whether it's methodologies or whatever. And, um, we, we talk about this all the time, just in terms of business too, but it's, it is good to be challenged a little bit, um, because it's super easy to kind of slide into that, um, you know, same is, is good. Right. Yeah. Where you feel like, uh, that that's sort of a safe place, but as you know, things are con- continually changing on the threat, uh, aspect <laughs> for security. And so, you know, things that we didn't have to think about five or 10 years ago now is, is, is here, not, not coming. And, um, so that, that's the biggest thing I, I think of is I think security people in general are, uh, very aware, aware of adaptability and adapting to new threats and, and, um, and sort of thinking ahead, um, which is sort of that, that chess move mentality, right? What this is, this might happen next, this might happen. And you're doing, uh, scenarios continuously trying to figure out, you know, like you said, I'm, I want to keep people and then, uh, property and assets, um, secure. So I have to, I have to think ahead of the, the bad guys, uh, which is a challenge. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that background has to be a, an amazing, um, advantage just in terms of, you know, where you're coming from and just understanding the role and then, uh, and then of course growing as, as you went through your career, uh, you had quite a few different, um, levels of, of, uh, expertise in there. That was amazing. No, thank you. And I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, look, I, I, one of my mantras, learn something new every day. Um, I read voraciously. Uh, I have an API that I've set up on my home computer, uh, that actually I call it my web spiders and it, it searches out news articles for me. So I have a, a TLDR in the morning. Uh, that I can sit with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and go over and say, what happened in the world? Yeah. North Korea. Oh, let's shoot something else off today. Yeah. Um, or, hey, this new product's coming on the market. Okay, well, let me read about it. And then if I think it's worthy, I might deep dive it if I have the chance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what I, I do. Same thing. You have your, yeah. your kind of RSS feeds and and you're looking at so, sort of those things that come in. And, and of course you're like, okay, add, add, 
you know, here's some meat. Exactly. <laughs> here's something I'm, I'm actually interested in, in kind of diving into. Um, and, and that, that sort of is, I think the, uh, a good position to be in, you know, where you, you do have at least a lot of data that does come in, but, um, of course, interpreting data and, and having it where it's useful. I mean, there's a lot of data, um, but it's, yeah. uh, it's gaining that useful data. That That's the hard part, right? That's exactly. That's the hard is parsing the data yeah. and, and interpreting, interpreting and analyzing it correctly. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you one thing, uh, sure. especially based on your, your career is what, what would you say to, you know, a young person who's looks at the physical security industry, especially, you know, I think cyber gets a, a lot of, um, press and, and, and obviously there's, there's a huge need for it. Um, and our worlds are becoming more and more entangled, I suppose, but the physical security industry is in a growing industry and there's a lot to it. And, uh, I, I see that as an expanding world as well. Uh, what would you say to a young person who wants to get into that? What's your what's your advice to them? If you want to join the physical security industry, uh, wow, there's a lot of paths to take. Yeah, there's a lot of paths that weren't open 10, 15 years ago. Uh, you could start with a contract guard force company, learn the basics. Um, if if you want to attend college. Um, there are degrees now in Homeland Security that are pretty in-depth, um, security management, the emergency management side of it, because there is a synergy and a synchronicity between physical security, anti-terrorism, counterterrorism, and emergency management that has to exist, uh, for a company to have business continuity and resiliency, uh, based on whatever the impact uh, of an occurrence or a possible event is that's a great point. Uh, we saw that in COVID, right? Yeah, uh, where a lot of companies didn't have a pandemic plan, and were kind of making it up as they go. So they were kind of relying on a lot of ex-military or ex-first responders who already had FEMA training and understood the emergency management side of the house. Uh, pick your lane. And then once you're, I would tell you, I like to say it like this, hit your comfort zone hmm. and then figure out where you need to flex to. What else do I need to learn to make myself a more rounded uh, applicant candidate, you know, employee, um, for lack of a better term? No, I like uh, that. I think, I think that, um, and I, I understand what you mean. It's, it's you're going to have a natu natural inclination to certain things and you'll do those very well. And so that's sort of your, your start. And then once you sort of have that down, then you can sort of launch into the, into these other areas um, that are related, but it, it is nice to have sort of a, a footing in, in something that you're, you're just good at. It just sort of happens. And uh, that's, that's good advice. Yeah. I, I mean, mine started, uh, kind of dual path. I wasn't, I was the tech guy because I was an electronics technician, um, you know, by schooling and by trade and a microprocessor technician, which I used to be able to walk into Radio Shack and buy them for like $2. Um, can't do that nowadays. No. Um, <laughs> and then got the operations side of the, of the house. So it, it definitely rounded me out. 
uh, and moving into the training side. How are we running drills and exercises? Uh, the operation, the, the operational planning side. How are we writing our procedures and policies, right? How are we doing pre-planned responses? How are we documenting them? How are we validating that they're real, that they can be executed? Are they smart, for lack of a better term? Sure. Yeah, so, I, I think uh, just getting somebody on the right track on that. Obviously, there's uh, ASIS and a few other uh, organizations. SIA, there's a lot of them. The Sheriff's Association. Yeah. Um, if you're if and here's the thing, if you if you've got your space and that's where your comfort zone and you want to reach out, hey, maybe I want to go to the project management side. You can look at PMI. You can look at uh, a lot of people don't know an AAPM. So PMI does have a competitor. <laughs> uh, AAPM is the American Association of Project Managers. Um, they will certify you in project management. So yeah, it's a huge component. Th- for sure. It's a huge component in the security industry, uh, whether it's on the integrator side and you're doing installations, right? Whether mm-hmm. that's commercial, residential, whatever that security integrator is best at. Um, or is it on, again, the guard force side where you're running operations, where you're planning, hey, how will we protect, you know? and meet our key performance indicators under that contract to this, to company X. Um, you always need that project management background to set the milestones and to make sure you meet the goals in a timely manner. Yeah. Just or, organizational uh, aspect of it alone is just uh, a huge, a huge benefit for any company uh, that has that. Yeah. And so that, yeah, right. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a, some good advice for, for somebody come, coming up and getting into that. And then it's, as we see like the technology component, you know, last, de- last decade, like you were saying, we've seen a lot of changes. W- where do you see things? You know, there's a lot going on. Um, oh. Where do you see the next five going, especially coming from, you know, an engineering background, you can, you can, I'm sure you're, you're paying attention to robotics and, and these other components, but you know, it's a big world. There's a lot of things happening and you have to worry about, you know, where something's made and then, you know, what, what could be engineered in, into things very tiny. Uh, we saw that, you know, hit the security industry in the face pretty good there, um, over the last five years. So, yeah. you know, where do we go from here? And then where do you see the next five going in, in terms of, uh, so what's on your radar in terms of tech? Yeah. Um, wow. My favorite topic. Um, I call it the toy room. Yeah. The, uh, and actually it's kind of the favorite part of my job. Uh, where we're going in the next five years, I and I've been asked by my my leadership the same thing. Hey, we need a roadmap. Hmm. Uh, in the last two years, I'm not sure I can do that. And here's why, just to be very specific. I can give you a general roadmap, but not as specific as I could five years ago. Yeah. Um, where it was as simple as, okay, we're going to get more megapixels per camera. We're going to go to 4K. Um, now we're going to 8k, um, where we're going to be able to leverage AI, which we do. There's a lot of good AI out there. We're starting to see artificial intelligence, uh, and what I would call it advanced analytics, machine learning 
at yeah. the edge where it's actually included with that camera that you purchase for video surveillance. We're seeing AI leveraged with things like 3D LiDAR, which if you've never seen a three-dimensional LiDAR display nowadays, it's not the old eight-band LiDAR that we were used to four years ago. There are LiDAR devices out there now that are 128-band LiDAR units. Wow. It's like watching that scene from The Matrix where the code's falling and you can see the person. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing now. And to the point where there are companies who are taking those three-dimensional LiDAR images and overlaying... The last one I saw was 16, so RGB color, right? And it creates a two-dimensional photograph. Okay, are we getting to the point now where I won't need cameras? Where yeah, this it, can do it in a three-dimensional, in an X, Y, and Z space? Right. I mean, that's, that is truly next level where and, it, and now you have we, AI looking at that data too. Yeah. And it, yeah. That's, that's it reduces cool. your nuisance alarm rate because it learns and it understands. We have AIs now that are out there that I've say, okay, look at this door. If anybody walks out of that door with a box after 5 p.m., you alarm and the guards will respond because I don't want anybody carrying anything out. Right. If it sees a human being carrying a box or something in their hand, it will alarm. Um, we've got artificial intelligence out there now that I will say we're well beyond nascent stage on some of these. Uh, there are some that are still crawl stage. Um, we've got some now that I've watched red teams try and confuse it, and it can't be confused. Wow. Uh, and now I'm seeing where you combine that with thermal imaging, and your red your red team's done. Yeah, we're looking at that as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the you know we we talk a lot about layered security because it's not yeah. just one component, and and that's really all of these things layered together and and having multiple technologies to uh, to to mitigate these threats. I mean, it becomes harder and harder for an adversary to uh, to do that. So that's exciting. Yeah, and where, where two or three years ago, these were separate devices. Right. Now then, we're seeing them integrated into a single system. And, and it, that that's exciting. Wow. And then the analytic component, like you were mentioning earlier, you know, the problem with analytics was, you know, clouds come over and they, you would get false alarms. And so the analytic became sort of useless. You know, everybody just turned it off. And now with the AI and, and these things becoming smarter and smarter, now I, I'm finally seeing the benefits to the end customer where now this stuff is actually helping them. It, you know, they're not turning it off because of, of the false alarms. And um, so, yeah, this is definitely the future. I, I think it is. And let's take it one step further. A month ago in Austria, you had a team working with quantum computing mm. and they were able to network quantumly 25 kilometers each way. So 50 kilometers round trip over a standard fiber line. So this is quantum. This is entanglement over a standard fiber line. What does that do to our industry in the future? 
well, they were, they were talking about quantum computers um, will be able to break basically uh, like a, a, a cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. By, I think they were saying by 2030, which means I'm sure they're already doing it. But that just shows you, you know, yeah, that next level of computing. And there, it's always moving. And so then there's going to be other, you know, other things to, I'm sure, to uh, advance the the uh the algorithms to to make it where it can't be broken but yeah that that is that's a very exciting future with the the quantum computing component um it's definitely early i look at d-wave all the time just to see what what they're up to yeah Uh, um the cool part about the ai and the security realm and there's a lot of news out there right now about ai yeah um that's the more general chat gbt4 bing um, ours is kind of guardrailed to what's called computer vision or camera vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where it becomes really effective for us because when you look at it in the security industry, um, the most expensive part of security is our operational expense. It's our guard force, right? If you're mm-hmm. using guard force. Absolutely. The only true way right now to replace a post. So if you're using a four or a five model per post, five, you know, individual staff model per post to replace that operational expense, uh, that can be somewhere around depending on what the the standard pay, what state you're in and, and stuff like that, um, could be a quarter of a million dollars a year for one post. The only way to truly replace it right now is with an integrated AI where you have 250 threat vectors loaded in there, 500 threat vectors loaded in there. Uh, I've spoken with AI companies where they haven't found a top limit yet. That in itself kind of scares me, uh, but it kind of intrigues me as well. The other piece with AI, and this goes back to what you stated before about where is it built? Where is it assembled? Where are the pro- the the component pieces coming from? Right. How do we validate that that's secure? Um, that's another path that people can go down. And this is where I liked your statement about cybersecurity. Uh, because if you search physical security on the web... You're going to come up, uh, your first probably five to 10 matches are all going to be cybersecurity. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is where we're starting to synchronize and align uh, because the majority of our physical security systems now require networking. So there is a need in the physical security industry um, for software development engineers for network engineers um the technical program managers who understand all of this and can put together a project um and they are probably the unicorn uh i've got one really good friend known him for about 10 years he's a software development engineer yeah. Who loves working in the security field. And I was like, don't ever go anywhere. Uh, I think he's got like 
five or six patents already. Uh, <coughs> one of the smartest humans I've ever met uh, and just a, a great person on top of it. Um, that's another path people could go down. Look, if the cyber stuff intrigues you, we, we need you on our side as well. Yeah. Uh, because who's building all this? Who's building the firmware for cameras? Who's building... Um, so let's take uh, Genetech or Secure from Software House or Linnell. Somebody's got to program all that stuff. And those are SDEs. Those are network engineers. Um, and that goes right back to our quantum computing. How is this going to move forward? Um, how does a, a, a rack look that I'm setting up? that's going to have switches and fiber patch, you know, and servers in there. Um, how do we deal with the cloud? Well, that's the thing is the, the cloud component where the computing's being done, you know, especially yeah. if you're talking about quantum computing, you know, mm -hmm. no one's going to have that on site. No, so that's going to be off and, and, and done in cloud. And uh, it is interesting how these things are, are getting tied. Um, which is literally the the opposite of sort of a lot of the um, historic you know security was to have a, a dedicated isolated security network uh, as a as a way of protecting you know, you know look at critical infrastructure everything is when it's opened up you know it opens up uh, some challenges to that so I agree like you know especially yeah. the things that are on board though um, you know just looking at how these things are being made and the people that are, are going to be programming them. And of course we need that brain trust here. And I think we're seeing more and more, uh, at least from, from, uh, you know, the United States kind of top down, they're, they're looking at doing, you know, bringing more businesses in here to manufacturing wise uh, to do some of that, just because there is a, a giant need um, to have a lot of this stuff done, done in country because, uh, things are just changing so so rapidly uh, that I think it's going to be, uh, uh, and I'm sure you'd agree, it's going to be more and more uh, of an advantage to have things uh, done here, at least with the companies that are that are creating this stuff. No, I agree. I agree because this goes back to my comment about supply chain security before. Yeah, um, that's a critical path that we need to look at security wise. Uh, I see a lot of uh, peer companies, corporations, um, and competitive companies and corporations to where I'm at now, um, heavy leverage on how do we protect our supply chain. I think that's another, I think that's a good positive outcome from COVID. Yeah, um, it, it totally revealed the, the, weak, the weakness of, you know, just-in-time type of shipping and and, and a lot of the stuff that we was built in. We are in full agreement, sir, yeah. <laughs> that the hybrid model is probably the best model to use on that. But yeah. then how do we secure it from wherever it's manufactured? How are we testing it? Are we doing penetration testing? Are we following, I would say, due diligence, right? This is all due diligence for whoever my customer is. Can I physically install this and say, yes, this is secure? Um, I will never tell anybody it can't be hacked, uh, but I can tell you that the likelihood would be negligible. 
or or extremely low, whatever verbiage you want to use, right, on a risk matrix or a threat matrix. Um, but the other piece that AI opens up is it does open up vulnerabilities, new ones that maybe we haven't explored before that we need to. Uh, there are corporations out there that refuse legally to let their security teams deploy facial recognition. Right. There Now there are other companies out there who said, okay, we can't do facial recognition. Let's create this algorithm that I am sure would just, my mind would be blown after like the, the first, you know, iteration of it where we can do what's called a body morphology where it takes however many points on your silhouette and ties that to your access badge or your information. And then it recognizes you not by your face, by how your body is shaped, how you walk. Um, and it can actually differentiate to 99% accuracy wow. uh, to include identical twins. Which is not something wow. uh, I didn't believe it until my mind was blown when I saw it. Um, this is the kind of things we're looking for. So how does this, if you're running access control on your building, how does this look? And my vision is this. I, okay. I'm probably still going to have a badge because visual recognition, right? It's a thing. And I'm good with that. Operationally, that's a good thing to have. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to be able to walk up to a door and not have to swipe a badge or use near field communication or something like that. Because now we're seeing near field communications that can go over eight feet. Um, there are encryption schemes for NFC where it wasn't before, uh, where it's reading my badge. The camera recognizes who I am according to the algorithm. And if I'm authorized in that space, the light turns green and I open the door and go in. It's a dual authentication. Yeah. It's still a two factor authentication to get in something the company has provided traditional method and something you've provided. Uh, I would say we would call that next level biometrics. Um, and, and the thing is, it's elegant. The yeah, trouble is say, elegant. It's, it's not simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 complicated, but at the same time, uh, with with that is there is greater speed with with a yes. uh, a solution like that, which is always a huge deal. You know, you you get solutions out there, and and then all of a sudden you have you know people stacking up trying to get in. Uh, oh because yeah, some of these solutions are a little slow. So yeah, that that's that is a that's a great solution for sure. Uh, it is, and that's the kind of things we're looking at. How are we doing an unstaffed um, entry control gate? You know, a lot of companies, um, I, I would say a lot of them I see now have gates. They have perimeter fencing. How do we, is that staffed all the time? This goes back to the operational expense. Can we do that unstaffed? Can we leverage AI to help us with that? Can we leverage thermal to help us with that? Right. Um one of the historic things, and a lot of people uh, who've been around a while probably understand this, the security industry gets a lot of good stuff from the automotive industry um, because we kind of let them beta test it first and then we take it. LiDAR is one. 
It was used in self-driving cars. Yeah. Uh, it's used in robotics now in a, a huge number of industries uh, for all these self-driving robots running all over the place. Um, why can't we leverage one of those robotic arms to handle cameras? We put yeah. it on a track that can run around a vehicle that's in a, an enclosed parking space, and it can give me a 360. It can angle through the glass with thermal and tell me if anybody's hiding in the vehicle. Uh, you set up a wall with backscatter x-ray. Now I know who's hiding in the trunk. Now I know if anybody's inside that UPS truck other than the driver and a bunch of boxes. Um, it's all risk-based. I call it the four rights when we look at this. It's the right device in the right place at the right time for the right reason. Hmm. Um, because a lot of people will over-engineer their security systems. Sure. And there's once you hit the critical mass point, you lose value add. Um, you're basically just throwing money. Um, where you may it's it's not actually raising your security posture. It's not heightening that. Um, it's actually just creating friction with your customers and and let's face life in in security. Our customers are 360 degrees around us. It could be the actual customer we're working for um, or who's coming into our location, or it could be the sure. employees who are working around us. They're still our customer as well. Right. So, yeah, uh, exactly. So it's kind of a balancing act. And that's one of the other things we look at when we're building roadmaps, when we're, we're identifying where do we want to go. Uh, the other piece that's really critical is look at your ecosystem. So your security environment, right? Uh, if you're Fortune 50, you've probably got a global footprint to some extent. Sure. In your ecosystem, is whatever device you're looking at scalable? <clears throat> I've seen a lot of really cool devices out there. But when I ask the question on lead time, and I ask the question, hypothetically, if I wanted 1,500 of these, how long would it take me to get them? Uh, and that drives further conversation, right? Right. Because maybe they tell you, I can do it in a month. Really? We need to sit down and talk. Um, or... You know, our manufacturing just not up to that. It would take us eight to 10 months to get that. Okay, if I've got 150 sites or, or 55 sites around the globe and I'm looking to retrofit to raise the security posture at those sites, yeah, that's, you that's know, not that's gonna not going to make it. So that drives another conversation. How long would it take you to tool up manufacturing to do this? Um, so those are critical key questions that you also have to ask when you're looking, where are we going to be at in five years? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, you know, the fortune 50 companies I've worked with, um, that was always a big one is, you know, how fast and they, they want to scale something out. They have an initiative and then it's on and, and, and it's you, you need to make sure you can hit those windows for them for sure. And then, 
and uh, those other components of security built into the products and and you know that was a large learning curve i think for a lot of um, security manufacturers was what was really required and it was really early on from the first fortune 50 companies saying you know it needs to have this and then if they couldn't come up with that and get that done in time um which i saw then they went to somebody else uh, because you know they have a a um a template, if you would, you know, there's certain things that they want done and there has to be these check marks on it, or they're not going to deploy something like that. Um, especially worldwide, because that becomes a bigger problem, um, for a company like that. So for sure, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I was going to ask you too, when it comes to researching new technology, I mean, it sounds like you're always keeping up on it, but what, what's the most frustrating part of that process for you, Doug? I'm going to be politically correct here. Um, the most frustrating part is getting to the engineers. Hmm. Um, now, that is another change in our industry. We are seeing a lot of sales, business development side. Yeah. Who actually have an engineering background. They're trained as field engineers so they can answer a lot of the questions. But to your point, well, how do I get it to do this? And I want this three features added in. How do we do that? If I'm asking the question, I've already got an idea in my mind of how it can be done. I just need to sit with the engineers who are going to give me the honest answers. And I know they're right. Oh, I've dealt with companies where I said, you know, this is on your PC board and I really don't like this. Um, I, I've got a customer where I can't use near field communication or Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, right? Uh, I need those disabled. I'm looking at the schematic for the device and I was like, can we take the NFC chip off and I will pay the extra $25 per device to have it manufactured that way. Sure. And the salespeople, of course, are like, well, we can do that. You know, okay, let me sit with your engineers. And then the engineer comes in and says, it's integral to the operation of the board. And that's where all my other questions start coming out. It's an input-output device. Why is it integral to the operation of the board unless you wanted it to be integral? Um, how do we turn it off? Uh, well, you can't. Okay, moving on to next device. So I, I like to get to the engineers. Um, the key to that, though, you always have to NDA. Um, some are mutual NDAs, even though I am a huge proponent of not reverse engineering anything. I, I dislike that uh, from a company perspective because that means I'm poaching, right? Yeah. I'm, uh, it, it, I see it kind of as a semi-covert business espionage. Um, just my own language, my own opinion. Uh, I would much rather sit down and work with the engineers. There's a way we can work this out. Um, and with the background I have and the training I have, I, I can understand what we're saying when we're building electrical circuits and, and you know developing these kind of things onto a board. Yeah, you can um, follow them along. You're like, easily. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huge advantage. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're in micro components now. You don't do component troubleshooting anymore, but understanding what the components do and how I can identify it on a board definitely helps. Um, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the toughest piece. Um, simply because it's about 25% of the time you get a lot of pushback until you mention, well, let's, let me send you an NDA. So now I'm just waiting on the, on the NDA. Uh, and once that gets finalized, generally that part happens quickly. But again, like you said, move fast. Yeah. Directive from leadership is have this done next week. Well, okay. Um, I need to move fast. Um, how can I do that when I have process that, you know, requires X number, you know, the SLA, maybe X number of days. Um, so you always have to bake that in, but that's, that's really the only frustrating part is getting to the engineers so I can understand the technical side of it. The operational side of it's generally fairly simple. That's really interesting. Yeah. Just in terms of, uh, you know, diving into the products, uh, that's pretty unique. I, I think a lot of people are trying to get away from sort of the, uh, the feeds and speeds, uh, product stuff. And, and this is like, how does this address this, a problem? Um, and from doing 15 years of job walks with system integrators and putting, um, solutions together, you know, and, and all the different layers for it. It's just like, I think a lot of people think about the product first and, and then sort of figure out, you know, where can it fit versus here's a problem. And then what solutions going to fit, you know, that problem and kind of work backwards from that. And I think having the engineering component to it to say, all right, let me, let me really drill into this and see, you know, how is this going to address all of these problems plus the supply chain, you know, all, all of it. And, and that really does take it, you know, to that, that next level. But I think doing the research, uh, is, is difficult nowadays though, uh, just because there's a, a tremendous amount of, of there's data a ton of stuff out there. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so our thing is like, you know, what can we do to, to, um, you know, to, to think about a, a list of, of known good products, you know, it's, it's this sort of, uh, boil the ocean comp component. I think a lot of times where you want to compare out every product, well, how about just compare out the best products, you know? So sort of a curated um, way of, of looking at, you know, what's out there and what's addressing uh, solutions. So I think that's the hardest thing is, you know, people want to to do every single product that's out there and nobody wants that. Nobody wants to see, you know, 15 uh, cameras, um, you know, compared well, to each other. It's standardization, right? Yeah. For, for a corporation, it's standardization. And I approach standardization uh, from a global perspective, you would approach it that standardization is an 80-20 proposition. And here's why. I have countries where I can't use certain equipment. Right. I have to use equipment that is made and manufactured in that country. Uh, the EU, I'm dealing with GDPR. Um, Singapore leverages a lot of the EN standards that we see in EMEA. Um, if, if you're in China, it's a totally different animal. Um, 
how does that play into that standardization process, which is why I always say it's kind of an 80-20 rule. Uh, but to your point, you hit the nail on the head with the reverse planning. I'm not going to look at a device and figure out how it's going to fit in. I'm going to say, this is my problem. How do I solve it? Right. And then backwards plan from there saying, well, this would solve it. Is it better than what we have? So you can do that whiteboard exercise. It's almost like a Lean Six Sigma exercise with a bunch of post-it notes and a whiteboard or a chalkboard. And you're working your way backwards. Right. And moving stuff around until you go, this system, because we're not looking at a device anymore. And that's that's another thing I think that can be frustrating uh, is everybody wants you to focus on the device when I want to focus on the topology. I want to focus on the entire system and how it's going to interact. Yeah, and that that gets to that layered component too, where yeah. you know how does this interact with the, these other solutions, and it, it's the overall you know solution, meaning a lot of different uh, components that that have to work together. And you know you, you're mentioning you know you, uh, there's corporate standards, and then that means that there are devices that work with it well, and sort of you, you started getting get into this uh, matchmaking you know, component when you do have to look at, uh, solutions that are going to, to be a good fit, um, which makes it more complicated in some ways, but at the same time, having standardization, uh, makes it a lot easier to work on things and get support. So. No, it does. Uh, and to tell you the truth, I think, especially from a fortune 50 perspective, I think we can drive change within the industry. Because I can take two systems that everybody around me, they're never going to work together. And I'm thinking about it going, API is a thing. I understand APIs. Let me call up a couple of my software buddies. They're going, yeah, sure, they can make it work. Uh, it's it's going to be a little complex, but they can code it. Okay. So now let me go back to the manufacturer and go, hey, I need you to be able to integrate with this. Uh, well, we don't have... Could you please research that? Uh, because I'm looking at an enterprise deployment. Yeah. And I, I've had companies reach out to people they never thought they were going to integrate with. And now they're integrated with them. Right? Right. Uh, no, that's, a, that's a great benefit uh, for being able to push things like that out because it does benefit everybody else. Um, you know, when a Fortune 50 puts their weight behind an integration... You know, that's what most manufacturers are waiting for is a deal that that's going to push something uh, for, for doing an integration. It's the return on their investment and, yep. and you're helping to provide that for them. Uh, business 101, that's good for everybody. It's a win-win. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you straight up. So the integrator side of it also wins because now they can train their people in new devices from the manufacturer, get to certifications. So that broadens their scope of what they can offer. Absolutely. Um, so it's a ripple in a pond effect is the way I see it. And, and we mentioned due diligence before. I think that's part of due diligence when you're in the Fortune 50. Ask the hard questions. Step outside of the box. Right. And say, what can I leverage? Uh, can I take a thermal camera and not use it as a camera? What do you mean? Well, if I put them parallel to a fence line or a cage that I'm trying to protect, now I have a thermal intrusion detection system. Well, what do you mean? I was like, 
it, it's it's a thermal camera. It's got machine learning and that yeah. on the edge. It's got analytics. If you set up the lines, if it crosses the line into the thermal area, if it detects anything in the thermal range, it's going to alarm. Oh, we didn't think about that before. That's why you got to step outside the box. Right. Well, and that's that's the thing, though, is that the people who actually use the technology wind up thinking of, and I've seen this a million times, they think of applications and things that the manufacturer didn't even anticipate. And, and that's that's always really cool um, just to see how they're using something. And like you said, it, what are they wanting to integrate it with and how they're going to, what the use case will be. Um, you know, that's how a lot of innovations happened, actually, through the years um, where they, they do see something that, wow, we didn't even think about putting this on a ship or, or whatever it is um, oh, yeah. they, they went up doing. So uh, we, we've seen some pretty neat uh, applications like that. You know, in terms of, you know, there, we, we talked a little bit about some of the threats that are out there. Um, what, what are things that are sort of on your radar in terms of new threats? And then I want to definitely pick your brain on robotics and drones uh, after that. Oh, sure. New threats. Um... AI, uh, not what we use again in the security industry because that's right. mostly computer vision, camera vision. There are there are strict guardrails with that. Right. Um, you're drugs. talking about you're talking about brute force. Brute force AI. Yeah. Um, Which is critical infrastructure is worried about that. We're we're, yeah. we're talking about that a lot actually. Yeah. And, uh, and it's going to take AI to to counter AI. I think is what what's going to wind up happening because of the speed. Um, but yeah, that that's definitely a cause for, for concern, you know, for, for security. And it's funny, there, there's all, always this cybersecurity component of that yet, you know, we have our devices and, and, and as long as those things aren't, um, you know, there's not a pen penetration on a device like we've seen in the past. Um, you know, all as well, but it, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Uh, and there's, there's some, always somebody that's very smart in the, in the wrong way. I saw something on access control where they're looking at the light waves, uh, for something to open and, and seeing what the access control, uh, key card would, was, was pushing out there. And, you know, you look at AI and, and, and obviously taking over cameras or anything like that would be very bad. No, agreed. Um, uh, the next one and speaking of critical infrastructure, uh, drones, yeah. drone swarm. Uh, how do you protect a bit? How do you detect it? Uh, I've done a lot of proof of concept, uh, and deep diving, uh, into drone detection. Uh, some really super products out there. Um, there are some really super products that are out there that aren't scalable. To a Fortune 50 level, uh, they could yeah. be at a smaller level, right? Um, how do you detect them? But then again, here in the U.S., I can detect them. But what do we do then? Because the FAA won't let me use an EMP weapon, right? Um, Falcons are expensive, um, and, and they're tough to house, and you need vet services and stuff like that. But they'll take a drone out in a heartbeat if you train them. Um, 
how do we deal with this moving forward, especially knowing that we can have an AI driving the swarm? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think uh, there was a video. It was sort of a uh, a what if video. And it was showing something similar to that sort of getting away and it had had a component to it. But we've been we've been looking at this ourselves uh, just because we deal a lot with critical infrastructure and substations. <laughs> this freaks me out uh, thinking about, you know, uh, dams and, and electrical substations and, and things like that. And. Yeah, I mean, I, I think having scalable deterrence uh, or at least, you know, being able to, to monitor the airspace is a huge help. But you, if there's no way to mitigate it, it's like that classic camera getting, yep, there's a guy stealing the car and there he went. So, you know, yep. unless unless there's some way of uh, mitigating the threat and, and to your point, you know, the FAA, it's going to be reactionary, I'm, I'm afraid, where yeah. it has to happen before something happens. But I think at least uh, there should be certain certain companies or, or certain organizations that have access to to ways of uh, of mitigating that. So that that's definitely one that keeps me up at night. Um, you know, I could do what I can do. You know, I think physical barriers are underrated. Um, so I'm, I agree. I'm, I'm in fact probably the next video I do or close to it's going to be regarding. Uh, fencing, sort of the next level of fencing versus chain link, which I cut through in you know seconds. Even if as a sensor, the guy did did what you didn't want him to do and got out. Uh, that helps no one. Um, so we're looking at what else is out there that has stopping power, and um, you know we're not trying to make Fort Knox, but you definitely certain sites need to be hard, and and uh, unfortunately uh, they're not. And and I think chain link. You know, what is that over a hundred year old technology? Um, oh yeah. You know, we need to we need to look beyond that a little bit. And in so, fact, anyway. I don't I don't install chain link, um, which would be a standard two inch mesh, right? Yeah. Um on anything except for maybe secondary or tertiary inside of the perimeter. Right. Um, like Shrek said, it's an onion and there are layers. Um I've, uh, with certain locations, I've done one inch chain mesh, uh, which is technically anti-scale. Let's face it, like nothing is anti-scale. Right. Uh, it's technically anti-scale. It does give you increased delay, um, because physically you, they can't get a toehold. Um, you need another device, uh, which if you're being proactive, a hook ladder or whatever it is that they're going to bring with them. Yeah. And if you're being proactive with your security, you're going to see that and it's going to alarm. That's true. Yeah. Um, it depends on how far away. Exactly. Uh, someone else. Yeah. Uh, but critical infrastructure, same way as you. I, I think the, the physical barrier piece is underrated. Uh, I look especially substations. Uh, I deal with a lot of substations. Um, how are we protecting them, especially here in Washington state? Now it didn't affect me. Uh, it was more over in the Seattle Kent area. Sure. Um, but I look at attacks like in California, North Carolina, here in Washington state. Um, what if that is a data center? What if that is a, uh, to your point, a dam? Yeah, that's that's you know, that's um, and you level. get a Barrett 
<laughs> and now you're doing way more damage than somebody with a, a 308 or a 30-06, right? Right. At distance. Uh, how do we protect? Um, a lot of my suggestion, the other one would be uh, if somebody is using uh, evaporative cooling on manufacturing facility, right? A lot of them are you know, rely on that evaporative cooling and they have the big water tanks right outside the building. Most of the time, I don't see a fence around them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, was, I think the, the, the bubbles or the, the barriers need to be larger uh, for a lot yep, of these things. I agree. Uh, including water. I mean, there's, we can go on and on, but there, there are, you know, how it was before. <laughs> Here's <laughs> how it was before here, how it is now but we still have this. So we just need to have those uh, systems in place where we, we pull that out. And then of course the challenge of, of infrastructure is not there. So how do I get power? How do I get signal? Yeah. So these cameras are going to be now out on the edge and luckily there's some things for that, but yeah, this, these are the things that I'm thinking about constantly. It's like, as these things change and then how, how do you mitigate those, those threats? But this is a big one for sure. I think probably the biggest you know, critical infrastructure is definitely top of the list, right? I agree. Uh, um, whether and, and it's water, about, power, um, yeah. those grids need to stay up. Uh, I would also say looking at kind of Congress has batted it back and forth for like five years now. You have all these data centers all over the United States. Well, guess what? That's kind of critical infrastructure, but they haven't declared it yet. I yeah. don't know whose side that is on. Uh, understanding that if they get declared critical infrastructure, that brings a wealth of additional resources and that to those locations and to the fiber highway, to be specific. But it also brings the flip side of the coin, right? Now it's auditing um, right. new requirements uh, under federal guidelines. Yeah, that'd be uh, what NERC, NERC SIP? For, uh, for those facilities, it, for a lot of them, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially the data center environment, where a lot of them have substations. So it would definitely be NERP SIP. Uh, you'd have to look at that. Uh, I think data cable is still under NERC, so like fiber optic cable. Um, so all that ICT infrastructure still needs to, you know, uh, look at that as well. Uh, the water tanks. I I I gave somebody a recommendation a couple of weeks ago i said you realize that if i shoot the bottom of that water tank like three feet off the ground you're done if i put a big enough hole in there you're done well what do you mean i was like all the water is going to drain out before you can patch it and right. now you have no cooling in your in your location in your manufacturing facility well what do you suggest uh eight foot concrete reinforced wall would be nice yeah um it would be a start um 12 foot if your ahj will allow it you know what i mean or, or whoever sure. some of the ahjs now are more like hoas uh and and that's not a lie some of the ones i dealt with are you know well the generator fencing has to have this and it's got to be this color and we're not talking like galvanized steel or black or gray. We're talking, it's got to be this one of these pastel or tan colors. Oh, no. Um, so I'm with you on the CIP. Uh, big time on protecting our critical infrastructure. 
Uh, because guess what? You can't run a manufacturing facility if you ain't got power and you ain't got water and that's you right. ain't got the basics. Well, it, your, to your earlier thing is that's business continuity. Yeah. You know, I, I worked in data storage for, for years and that's part of business continuity is you have to have sort of these backup plans and you know, what happens if X happens and then for security, same thing. It's just like, well, if this happened, then you're, you're out of luck at that point. So yeah, these, these are big areas that we're, we're definitely focused on. And, you know, it's like you said, it, it's more of a passion project where you're, you're trying to really figure out how can I lock this down and make it where somebody can't come in and, and do something to it. Uh, and that, you know, we're, we're looking at everything, um, including robotics. You know, I think there's a place for that and, and even drones, I guess, but drones, I'm, I'm looking at drones usually more on the, uh, the adversary side than, uh, than, than, than the other side, I, I guess there's, there's components that are good, you know, in terms of monitoring large areas or something as they get better. Um, but I think on the ground robotics is, is kind of interesting. It is uh, a couple five years ago, four years ago, uh, ran an on the ground test that, that didn't go real well. It actually ran into the kind of destroyed the quarter panel of a brand new integrator vehicle. Uh, uh -oh. Luckily, I didn't have to explain that. I was just witnessing. Uh, have looked at drone technology as a force multiplier. Uh, when you've got a, a drone that can travel, you know, 35 knots and it's straight line and the speed limit around your factory is five miles an hour and the guard force is not going to violate that because they don't want to get fired. Right. Right. These new drones have public address capability. Uh, they can carry FLIR cameras like forward looking infrared cameras. Um, they can carry 4K true day-night cameras uh, to give the operator in your control center uh, a visual. Hey, that person is trying to scale the fence. You call 911 while I watch them, right? Yeah. Because most guard forces are unarmed. They're report and observe only, which I'm good with. That's the nature of the beast. Um, they're not to engage. Uh, I think it can become a force multiplier. But the investment has to be there because there's infrastructure investment that goes with that. Um, I've looked at the robotic, uh, we'll call them dogs, uh, the quadruped robotics. Yeah. Um, I know that PG&E just went all in on some uh, and good on them, knowing how remote their locations are and it's critical infrastructure. So I'm okay with this. Yeah. Um, you can put these things out autonomously and they go and when their battery runs down, they go back to their, well, Connex, but doghouse. And the second one comes out, right? Uh, and there's a myriad of things you can put on them. Uh, we talked about LiDAR quite a bit earlier. I've seen LiDAR on it. I've seen radar panels on them. Uh, I've seen long range acoustic devices on them. Uh, from people like Genesis, uh, cameras, uh, yeah. yeah, PA speakers where you can pre preload, you know, 
MP4s and stuff like that to say, hey, you're trespassing, you need to leave. Um, the newer ones that I've seen, because everybody's like, oh, you just tackle it and take it to the ground. Okay, this thing weighs like 400 pounds. And now they've trained them to shake like a dog would shake. It actually can kind of protect itself where it That's shakes cool. its neck and head back and forth to keep you from trying to grab it and turn it off, uh, which was actually kind of cool. And again, kind of scary. I'm glad that AI is not running it right now because I, <laughs> I've seen that movie. It doesn't end well for us. Um yeah, we're looking at all of that because I think we have to. To even to the fact of uh, small security robots. Say you've got a uh, manufacturing plant and you've got two lines in the mm. northeast corner of the plant that aren't going to run twenty four seven. They shut down at six p.m. at night or whatever. Shut down yeah. after second shift, so we'll say eleven p.m. Right, ten or eleven p.m but I want to make sure that everything's safe in that area. So now I can deploy these little basically iRobot size robots in there that have cameras um, and other equipment on them where they can detect if there's a person there and they can alarm. Um, so it's not only a security, but that's the other piece of security is now our, our blast radius. We're covering a lot of safety stuff. Um, our traditional wash prevention side, because, hey, we don't want people sneaking in and, and stealing components. What are we manufacturing? You know what I mean? Do I have no, rare yeah. earth metals in there? Um, yeah, I saw item. somebody putting uh, SSD drives and they strapped them all the way around them, you know, going through a facility. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's always something like that happening, yeah. you know, from from a espionage aspect no i agree uh one of the other things uh kind of on the drone and robotics because it's advanced technology is looking at millimeter wave um everybody's used to going through tsa and put their hands up and stuff like that well guess what uh the same people who make those make a smaller version um that you can use and is actually pretty quite effective hmm. um Still got to figure out the whole shoe thing. So I've, 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 I've dealt these a little bit um, where you still have to remove your shoes, but allegedly they're, they're coming up with a solution for that. Uh, but the cool part is, is knowing that drones now can integrate with other systems. That was one right. of the big ones that threw me. Uh, not sure. Did you make it down to ISC West this year? Uh, yeah, we were there. Yeah. Um, met with somebody I know in the industry who was presenting out there who was like, hey, we are now integrated with this, with this drone company. And I was like, oh, talk to me. Talk to me. Because now that bubble, that layered defense in depth concept gets more robust. Yeah. Right. Um. We're seeing a lot of that now where the companies are actually reaching out on their own. So it's not us just leveraging things or saying, hey, why don't you do this? Um, it's the companies stepping outside of the box, like you said, and creating a, a better security product, a better system overall. Yeah, I, I love the integration. That, that's always been a, a yeah. big component. And I think if that continues to go 
and get stronger. That's good for everybody. Um, but you know, it, it also takes explaining these solutions out because, you know, it has to go through, uh, integrators need to understand how, how it works and where it's going to be applied and then how all these components work together. And then, then that goes out further. So the education component I think is really important. Um, which is, you know, what Defender's about, but hopefully, uh, we, we can have more and more manufacturers that kind of get the, the idea of, of having somebody just explain and, in uh, quick, <laughs> concise terms, you know, what's something, what the benefit's going to be, uh, to the people that are actually using it. Um, so that, that's always our, our hope. What, um, in, in case people aren't familiar, we, we have to cover this just because of our, our industry. Sure. The difference between CSO and CISO, um, and there's different initiatives, different job description, uh, but a lot of people get those confused, like we were talking about when you're doing a, a search on security. Um, do you want to cover that a little bit? Because I know sure. that's uh, an area that drives me bananas. I'm sure it drives you crazy too. Yeah, sure does. Um, the trouble is it's about as haze gray as a Navy ship right now. Um you have companies that don't have a CSO, that everybody falls under the CISO, um, which the CISO is the chief information security officer. That is more the cyber side of the house. Traditionally, yeah. the CSO, chief security officer, that is more the operational security, physical security, traditional physical security side of the house. Um, the biggest difference is CSO, it depends on how the org chart is now. Does the CISO, is that, is it bifurcated? Or does the CISO report to the CSO? Hmm. Um, do they both report to a senior VP or VP uh, where they're parallel? That, a bifurcation like that can cause a lot of friction, right? Uh, where if you have a single point on the org chart, say it's the CISO, then it flows down and you've got that point that can actually, that decision-making point, right? That belly button, for lack of a better term, yeah. uh, where you've got that decision point, especially when you're talking about things. So like you do the same on both sides when we do risk development and vulnerability analysis and working like design basis threat statements. You're going to do both sides of the house. Um, past jobs before this, I've worked both sides of the house on that. I can tell you our side on the physical security side is easier. Um, <laughs> but the cybersecurity side is, is just as important. It's just way more in-depth. The technical knowledge base that you need to do that CISO, and that would be the certifications like we talked about before. Um, yeah. especially like SIA, um, ISC, uh, squared people like that, where you're doing CISM, CISP, um, where you're the professional at that information security piece. Um, well, we need to understand that there's no doubt that's that muddy gray area where we kind of cross over. And we mentioned that a couple of times yeah. we're more on the op side. Um, oh, absolutely. How is this yeah. going to work? How does the gate work? Right. How do we operate that? How do we respond to this? 
on the CISO side, they have the exact same thing, but it's more focused on your network, right? Yep. Um, this also comes into play when you have a joint control center, right? So if I've got, we'll call them a, a SOC, for lack of a better term, where you've got a joint SOC where I've got both teams in there, uh, who's running the SOC? So that person has to have their feet on both sides uh, of that river. Size. Yeah. Um, and that is, I will tell you right now, I would not want to be a recruiter for that one. Um, that is an extremely niche market in our world. Uh, <clears throat> almost to the point that in the traditional physical security world, uh, a trained or certified anti-terrorism professional is kind of a niche thing. Um, the CSO I see is driving the overall risk on their side. What are the risk statements? What is the design basis threat? Are we building, like we talked about before, are we building correctly? Are we over-engineering this? Do I really need this? Um, what's the value add where the CISO is doing the same thing? Yeah. Only... It's backward planning on both sides, but the CISO has this added layer where, yes, this is a value. This is our solution. Okay, now we got to go test it. So I need pen testers. I need to bend it, twist it, shape it, right, and show where the holes are in a vacuum. Right. I don't want to look with all the layered defense I already have in my in my computer systems, right? Inside my IT systems. I need to look at it in a vacuum first. Uh, and that can be frustrating on our side of the house for people who don't understand that. It was for me at first. Going, yeah, but you're saying this is a high threat, CISO, but we have these that mitigate it. And then they explain that to you and you go, oh, we have to look at it in the vacuum. Well, we should do that with our stuff too. So now when we pen test a, a keypad or a camera or something like that, we're doing yeah. it in a vacuum. So operation side CSO, operation traditional physical security side, um, CISO, I, I would say cyber security side. However, they're not separated like this. They're kind of like this, right? Yeah. I just see the, the line being blurred. It was funny. I saw uh, there was a lieutenant general in the Army saying that they need they need civilians uh to come in to fill yeah. fill that gap on, on the cybersecurity side so it's definitely a growing area where there's not enough people um but at the same time i think that skill set at least for the cso i think they're going to have to need to understand both because um kind of like you're saying the lines are being blurred more and more yeah i agree i agree but uh completely different skill set though at this point um, so it I want to say that's, that's future. Uh, so, but today I think there's just a lot of confusion from, from people outside the industry. So I always like to, just in case other people are listening to this cause they find it interesting, then, you know, it's really a good thing to, to sort of show that these two worlds have a lot of different, um, you know, needs. So no, but, agreed. Uh, agreed. Man, I, I love chat. You're gonna have to come back on. This is just great to uh, to be able to. You're bring me on on the CIP through. stuff. You and I could talk critical infrastructure all day long because we're the oh, same mindset. Yeah, um, that that's definitely my hot button. And uh, you know, we we're, we have bigger and bigger things that I'm hoping to to get out there that are just gonna really focus on that because I just want to figure out like what what's everything that's out there 
that's wor- worthy of talking about that we can you know highlight so people understand whether it's from a system integration side to know that this is where you should be you know heading yeah or the people that are there that I, mean, I just don't feel like it's easy to get information and and who wants to go through um as much inf- info that they need to go through to find you know something useful right so that's that's the goal at least but what what would you like to share with the the defender community that we're building here uh, of other security professionals that um, you think would be helpful? Yeah, um, thought about this one quite a bit. Don't get frustrated. That's my mm-hmm. first one. Um, don't get frustrated. Breathe. Take a step back. Pull your blinders off. Uh, especially when you're trying to present, right? Uh, be very mindful of your audience, especially if you're talking to those C-suites, right? If you're talking to the CFO because you need money, um, you need to put it in terms they're going to understand. Um, I have approached CFOs before uh, who will ask me, why am I spending this amount of money? And it may sound flippant, it may sound sarcastic, but it's very open and transparent. My answer is, is what is one human life worth? Hmm. Uh, well, we've never lost, and then I'm in the security world. It's never an if, it's a when, right? Uh, just like we would say, I, I stated before, I'm never going to say no. I'm going to say it's negligible or very low. Right. Um, I'm never going to tell you it's zero. Um, so be very mindful of that and don't get frustrated because frustration, if you if you mischannel it, uh, can cause actions that, that you're going to regret. Um, when I was young and spunky, unlike I am now, uh, did that a couple of times and I've learned from it, had a lot of good mentors walk me through how to do this stuff. You can't let it frustrate you and stay inside of you because it's going to hurt you as a human being, both mentally and physically. The second piece is, and this goes kind of with the first one, take your blinders off, think outside of the box. Uh, especially in today's economic atmosphere. We've seen a lot of the, we've said a lot about Fortune 50. We've seen a lot of layoffs. Microsoft just did another round two days ago. Um, and I, I've seen postings. Uh, on LinkedIn and that about people who are, hey, I was impacted two days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, others have done multiple rounds of layoffs. Think outside of the box. Be able to present um, a solution security-wise, because that's our job, uh, that meets or exceeds the standard, right, that raises your security posture. But still, there's a cost-benefit analysis that can be done on it. There's a return on the investment that you can state. Um, And if you don't understand MPV and the finance piece, you you need to get with your finance team and and do the 101s and 102s with them uh, because that's critical to what we do. Uh, understanding that finance piece and being able, this goes back to the articulation. That's all one, uh, 
one skill set is presenting. Uh, and I see a lot of it on LinkedIn. I'm sure, Dave, you've seen a lot of it. I've seen a lot of it on YouTube videos. This is a bad presentation. Yes, I agree. That's a horrible presentation. And I know why you got shot down. Um, when you're doing that, seek out a peer in the industry. Um, uh, most of us in the industry are in the same groups on LinkedIn and stuff like that. Reach out. Yeah. We are here. We are. That's what LinkedIn's about. That's what these networks are about, right? Uh, SIA, ASSES, um, the the Sheriff's Association, um, all of those. That's what this is about. You're not alone. That's the biggest piece. You're not alone. Because guess what? Somebody in this group has probably run into that at least once before, maybe multiple times, and they can give you options to help you out. Don't be afraid to ask for assistance. That's another learned skill, especially in our industry. Yeah. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to say, hey, can somebody peer review this for me, please? Uh, hey, do you have 30 minutes we can hop on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever and chat about this? Sure. That's what we do. We need to support each other. Uh, again, especially in this economic environment and yeah. with the changing vulnerabilities and threats that are out there. That's good that, advice. Yeah. I, I, I think that's probably the, the, the best I can convey right now. I'm sure there's probably 12 other things, but well, I mean, presenting, I, I didn't even think about that. That, that is a, a huge, um, challenge for a lot of people. That's just not their skill set, And, and so they're, you know, they're going in to these meetings and just um, getting obliterated from, from questions. And, and like you're saying, you know, they, they, everybody wants to see this ROI and, and trying to uh, justify uh, different security initiatives can be a big challenge. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's part of it. And there's a lot to that. Boy, I could, that, that, that alone could be a, a big segment of, in terms of just chatting about that because that really goes all the way back from the manufacturer explaining things in a detailed way that helps the the security professional to also put that forward to their CFO because they have to realize that they have to do that. It's not going to be there's not going to be somebody with them doing that. Correct. And so, the other piece um, is you can't use security language. Yeah, you have to know your audience. You have to be able to put it in terms they understand. Right. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, I guess last thing, uh, what would you like to see Defender um, do and, and what would you like to see on here? Keep doing this. I already, I already made my comment about critical infrastructure. I'm all about that. Um, keep bringing and seeking those people out. We need the diverse opinions. And again, that goes back to, to my recommendations, right? For the, for the audience out there. Yeah. Um, never be afraid to learn. Never be afraid to ask for help. And always be open um, to the correct kind of criticism and stuff like that. Uh, I have had more than one paper shot out of this guy like Snoopy and the Red Baron. And he was not the Red Baron. That paper was Snoopy all day long going to get a root beer. Uh, 
don't be afraid of that. And David, just keep up the great work. This is an outstanding forum for our industry. Um, it is. It brings different aspects to light. Uh, where we're not focused on, you know, manufacturer A and their new model X Y Z. We're focused on. I, I would tell you common sense and logical things to discuss. You know, somebody's yeah. experiences. You can draw a lot from somebody else's experiences, and it just builds our network and broadens the network overall. So just keep up the great work. This is fantastic. I really appreciate that, Doug. Well, thanks again for for jumping on Defender. Uh, I can't thank you enough, and uh, you'll have to come back on for sure. This was a lot of uh, a lot of fun. Oh yeah, most definitely. I had a blast. <laughs>